This is The Guardian. Seit fast 60 Jahren ist NetJets der weltweite Marktführer im privaten Fliegen. NetJets ist der Wegbereiter im Teileigentum von Flugzeugen, unterstützt von Berkshire Hathaway und seit 2012 CO2-neutral. Das Unternehmen verfügt über die Ressourcen, den nötigen Willen und die Finanzkraft, um kontinuierlich in den Komfort und die Sicherheit unserer Eigentümer zu investieren und so deren Schutz zu gewährleisten, sowie unser Vermächtnis und die Zukunft der Privatfliegerei zu sichern. Starten Sie Ihre Reise mit NetJets auf netjets.com. The Conservative leadership contest is dragging to a close and it's becoming pretty clear who the odds-on winner is. I work hard, I deliver, I'm determined and I don't take no for an answer. That's how Liz Truss describes herself, but not everyone has such a flattering view of the woman who, barring disaster, is about to become Prime Minister very shortly. Here's Rishi Sunak, now very much the underdog in this contest, on his opponent's plans for tackling the cost of living. That all sounds a bit too good to be true, and I think most people listening will think, you know, most things, when they do sound too good to be true, they, they probably are. After days of unusually explicit blue-on-blue -blue attacks this week, we look at the still unanswered questions surrounding Liz Truss's thinking. I'm Gabby Hinsliff, sitting in for John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are Salma Shah, partner at Portland Communications and a former special advisor to Sajid Javid, and Sam Friedman, a senior fellow with the Institute for Government, um, but before that, special advisor to Michael Gove in the Department of Education, where Liz Truss, of course, began her government career. Hello, both. Hello. Hello. Now, I don't know what you had to have been up to on your summer holidays, but the bar for kicking back and relaxing has been set pretty high by Sanna Marin, the, the Finnish Prime Minister. She took and passed a drug test after videos surfaced of her partying in her spare time with friends. Boris Johnson, meanwhile, is newly back from his second uh, holiday of the summer, even though as of September the 5th, he can presumably take all the holiday time he likes. Salma, everyone's entitled to, to a life outside work, but how much of a life... Exactly. Should parties be off limits for politicians? Is dancing all right? To be honest, I think, you know, it is it is quite uh, difficult to sort of tread that line, isn't it? Because people who are going to criticise you are going to criticise you. You know, in the case of the Finnish Prime Minister, I was probably a bit like, oh, gosh, she's Prime Minister and she's off having a dance. But that's largely because I'm jealous because she's 33 and <laughs> I don't think has children. And uh, the idea of sort of going out for a night out dancing is very far from where I am at the moment. So um, maybe there's a, a sort of some latent resentment there. But, you know, she parties in a way that I don't. She also does probably loads of chin-ups in the way that I don't. So she probably does 10 a day and I can't do that either, but I'm not going to complain about it. So um, I think she's well within her limits to have a nice time. I think the question about our prime minister is slightly different because he is about to be out of office. We are facing these massive problems uh, in the country. And, you know, you'd think that he'd want to be at the helm and behind his desk for as long as he can, given that he's not going to be there much longer. I'm going to skip over those those images of, of Boris in his swimming trunks. I think we probably all can't forget at this point. But Sam, are we, are we being a bit hair shirt about this? I mean, or even a bit unrealistic. If Boris Johnson was in number 10, do we seriously imagine he'd be sort of nose to the grindstone, achieving great things in the remaining five minutes of his time as, as Prime Minister? Well, he hasn't done anything in the last three years, so I don't see why you'd expect him to do much in the next uh, few months. 
usually I'm very happy with politicians taking holidays. There's always a fuss about it. And I think, well, they've got to have a break. They're much going to be much more useful if they're refreshed. This is a very different situation. He's only here this this month. And uh, to go away twice feels quite like a sort of appointed sulk um, uh, complaining about the fact he was thrown out rather than sort of getting on with it and contrasts very strongly with Theresa May who in her last few months actually achieved probably more than she'd done in this sort of previous year um, once she was sort of free of the Brexit row. So, um, yeah, I think it, it kind of the way he's leaving the job kind of sums up how he did it. She was building a legacy and he's building a suntan, I suppose. But yeah. Anyway, nobody in politics this autumn is going to have an awful lot of uh, free time. We're talking today about how Liz Truss will handle the cost of living crisis and also about the results of the first proper GCSE exams since COVID. But let's start with the issue that's really been at the forefront of everyone's minds. This Friday, Ofgem will announce how high the energy price cap covering fuel bills for people not already on fixed deals um, is going to go this October, with some predicting it could rise to around 3,500 and potentially a lot more to come next spring. On some estimates, half of British households could be in fuel poverty by January as a result. Liz Truss started this campaign saying her priority was cutting taxes, which she argued would help people with the cost of living, while Rishi Sunak said his priority was help now, tax cuts much later. Truss even told the Financial Times that she wanted to help people in a conservative way, looking to tax cuts and not handouts. But as it's become clearer that tax cuts aren't much use to people who don't actually pay those taxes, including many pensioners, as well as the very poorest, her team has backtracked a bit, saying she'd been misinterpreted, she wasn't ruling out handouts. But it's still very unclear what she actually means by that. Here's what she had to say on the hustings in Birmingham this week. We have to be bold, and I have set out a bold agenda of not just lowering taxes and helping people who are struggling. And I understand there are problems with food bills, bills with fuel bills, but also with the cost of living. We also need to make sure we grow the economy and we avoid talking ourselves into a recession. Salma, she's going to have to U-turn and offer some kind of direct cash out with bills when she gets into number 10, isn't she, surely? I think it's becoming increasingly unavoidable that that is the action that she's going to have to take. And that is largely because this is not just sort of, you know, cost of living climbing up and and wages not sort of keeping up with it. This is a massive economic shock. And so she is going to have to address it because we are really going to start seeing the effects of this come September and October. She she is going to have to go in and work out what the numbers are and what she's offering and who she's offering it to. Because, you know, as you said in your intro, there is no point in, in offering tax cuts to those who are uh, who don't pay the tax already. But also you've got to be really careful about the fact that you're not going to help people who actually don't need that help with a kind of with a blanket sort of uh, payoff and you know in the way that some people have suggested that you've got to cut VAT on fuel bills you know you've really got to target it because none of us know how any of this is going to be funded at this point in time so she she does have to go in and have a look at the numbers as well in the treasury and see how it's going to be affordable. Sam do you expect her to offer some kind of direct cash payment and if she does does that leave any room left for the tax cuts she's built her campaign around? I mean, yes, it's inevitable that she's going to have to to offer something. It is not feasible to go into the winter without offering substantial support. And it isn't just the poorest. It isn't just the most vulnerable. This is a large, large chunk. The big majority of the population are going to need some support with, with, with the bills that are coming. And I think it's going to have to be really quite substantial. She's got really two options. She can either do a a kind of cash handout to people of the kind Rishi Sunak did earlier in the year, but at a bigger scale, 
or she can do what Labour and the Liberal Democrats have argued, which is to sort of try and cap bills and subsidise it through the energy providers. There aren't really any other options. And there's no way to be kind of clever about this and say this household doesn't need it, this household does. We just don't have the mechanisms at this speed to, to do that. So she's going to have to do something very substantial. If she also wants to do her tax cuts, which she's given every indication she does want to do, we're talking about massive increases in, in borrowing. You know, we're looking at over the next 18 months, we're looking at 130, 140 billion pounds, the kind of figures that are being banded around because the energy prices aren't going to be dropping anytime soon. Um, and that blows out of the water any kind of fiscal, fiscal targets, any kind of uh, belief that she's going to be a, a prime minister who's gone in a different direction to, to, to sort of Boris and, and Rishi Sunak, who, who also had to massively increase uh, borrowing because of COVID. And normally in those circumstances, if you had a uh, prime minister putting together that kind of emergency package, you'd expect the Office of Budget Responsibility to be jumping up and down, the independent body which acts as a kind of reality check on, on economic policy and saying, you know, you don't have the headroom to do this. But but she said that she won't require an assessment from the OBR before she puts her package out necessarily. Does that worry either of you? I mean, the, there's an element there of, of almost trying to ignore reality. And I don't, I don't want to be told anything inconvenient. I think that one of the things that is always um, quite telling about any candidate or indeed sort of any um, gobby special advisor as we've had over the past sort of few years is that people who start criticising independent agencies and people who start, you know, sort of criticising officials, you know, faceless officials, um, there's a real danger attached to that because what they're essentially saying is that, oh, this can be done without all that due process and the regulation and, you know, you're just, you're being killjoys and you're being difficult and we need to do something. Well, actually, those checks and balances are really, really important. And we are in an emergency situation. And yes, you have to show that there is um, an impetus behind what you want to do when you want to drive something forward quickly. But it cannot be at the expense of organisations that are there, essentially, as you just said, to offer that reality check and to be transparent and give everybody the same set of numbers so that you can draw your own conclusions from it. So that that is worrying because it is it's it's sort of it's a nod to that we've had enough of experts type line, which I, I you know actually I don't think has aged all that well especially experts that don't agree with me. Sam, you wrote a brilliant Substack piece about, about Liz Truss when she was at DfE and what it was like arguing with her when she set her heart on something, some slightly mad idea or other. Does the way she's behaving now seem consistent to you with the with the Liz Truss union then? Yes, I think so. You know, As I said in, in, in that piece, she's a smart person. She's a canny resilient she wouldn't have got to where she is if if she wasn't uh, but but her her sort of flaw is that she's sort of always looking for the idiosyncratic the bold the different uh, rather than accepting the sort of expert advice and and sometimes that's the right thing to do the expert advice the consensus can be wrong but it but often it isn't uh, and, and and sort of constantly trying to push against that and argue against that you know will 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 we'll take you down a lot of blind alleys and i think we've seen that a bit over the last month the sort of refusal to engage with what's inevitably coming down the line feels a bit like that sort of stubbornness again uh, uh, coming through and and you know everyone can see she's going to have to do something but she just sort of won't won't talk about it and won't engage with it it's a bit nelson with a telescope to the wrong eye isn't it kind of i see no ships so there are no ships how does she react if she's told she can't do something does she listen to advice can you make an argument to her that she will will eventually accept 
Yes, I think so. Um, you know, she she will um, listen to advice, but I think she's one of those ministers, and she's certainly not the only minister I, I work with who's like this. Where you have the debate with them, you get them to understand a certain issue, they'll accept it, and then the next day you're back having exactly the same argument again. We just talked about this yesterday. Tamla, why do you think she's clinging so hard to to tax cuts? I mean, they were, you know, her big dividing line with with Rishi. If she dumped them, is that essentially? a retreat too far she would effectively be agreeing that he was right so i think it's not a question of that he he was right i think you know this is a very fast moving situation and the news gets more and more dire you know every single day as as it goes past but you know the the trend is only going in one way so what i what i imagine is important is that she wants to set a tonal difference which is about growth which you know other people are not talking about at the moment and that our route out of you know some of these problems is about investing in growth now and not trying to stymie the economy with certain tax cuts but the the big issue that she's actually going to have which obviously impacts all of this is that the last spending review was based on an inflationary increase of three percent and we're now talking about 18 percent so the moment that she gets in, there are going to be really hard choices for all of her ministers around what happens in real terms to the budgets that have already been set. So cuts are coming. We're sort of getting distracted almost by this idea of kind of like the tonal approach that she's taking with, you know, going for growth, which is a message that she is obviously very focused on. But the reality of actually the nitty gritty and the technicalities that uh, that she's going to face. So it might be that she ends up doing the Rishi plan and having tax cuts later if she can foster loads of growth out of nowhere. Uh, but I think it's hard for her to let that go because it is very distinct from what her opponent is saying. Yeah. Coming back briefly um, to the to the specific question of fuel bills, and we, we, even the energy retailers now raising the alarm about the implications of, of where the bill's going and the, and the prospect of millions not being able to pay. Here's what the chief executive of Octopus, Greg Jackson, told BBC Radio 4's Today programme earlier this week. The big thing here is we need uh, more help for customers from the government. The reality is customers are being asked to pay the, pay the price of gas, which is weaponised by Putin, and um, they shouldn't be expected to do that alone. Let's put it in perspective. The UK's energy bill is going from maybe £15 billion in a normal year to £75 billion this year. And that's the equivalent of maybe nine pence or more on the basic rate of income tax. No government would announce that. And in the same way, no government should let this go to customers. In the meanwhile, after weeks of being criticised for not having anything to say about the cost of living, Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves have unveiled their plan to freeze the energy price cap, which looks a little bit closer to what some of the power companies are uh, asking for. It's a big plan with a price tag of about £60 billion. It's, it's bold, it's easy to understand, it seems to be popular. So has this been a, a good week for Labour, Sam? Yeah, I mean, I haven't been a, a massive um, fan of, of, of Keir Starmer's Labour uh, over the past few years. I think they've been overcautious uh, and missed quite a few opportunities. And, and maybe they were a little bit late on this one as well. But I think they've actually come up with a very clever plan at this stage because it's very, it's very easy to understand. It's clear offer. It's very hard for the government to replicate. And they've already been very critical of it, which makes it even harder for them to replicate. Whatever the government are, offer, are going to offer Labour will be able to advance uh, an alternative. Um, And the fact that they were a little bit dodgy in their costings um, uh, doesn't seem to have caused them any problems. They've put themselves in a good place now to to counteract almost anything that that Trust can do and get in ahead of her as well. 
It looks to me, Sam, like they're trying to repeat in a way what they did with the, the windfall tracks, trying to stake out popular ground and then try and force the Tories onto it or at least try and make them spend a wearying amount of time explaining why they're not going to do it. Do you think that that pressure is factoring into the trust campaign at all? Do you think she's got an eye on what they're doing or at the moment is she just really, really focused on on the membership contest? Well, she has to have an eye on what they're doing because ultimately, you know, as is now predicted, she's going to be the next prime minister and she is going to face Keir Starmer, you know, uh, at the at the next election. Naturally, ideologically, Labour are on safer ground because if it means more borrowing, if it means sort of thinking about the finances differently, they don't have to subscribe to conservative uh, fiscal rules for Liz Trust to rival what Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer are, are presenting is a complete sort of departure from her conservative way of being. So I think it's going to be really interesting. I don't think she needs to worry about that in the immediate because what she's trying to do is get hold of conservative um, voters who are looking for that optimistic pro-growth message, which is why I think she's doing so well. But, you know, if Rishi was smart, he would make more of a, a play on this, which is, you know, down the line, you are going to have to sort of think about what this actually means for borrowing and against the tax cuts that you've already promised. Yeah, it's interesting. A cabinet minister who'd worked with her said to me that the thing that she was probably most at risk from was the markets just being spooked by a trust government and thinking this is, you know, this is wayward and all over the place and over borrowing. And that's the point at which, you know, a reality check sets in that isn't necessarily provide, being provided by your your opponents. But let's um, just pause there for a minute. Up next, we're going to talk about GCSE and A-level results and what they might tell us about the UK's generation of COVID kids and their longer term future. Als weltweiter Marktführer des privaten Fliegens versteht NetJets, wie wichtig es ist, sich bei jeder Investition finanziell abgesichert zu fühlen. Deshalb entscheiden sich Kunden für NetJets. Unser bewährtes Geschäftsmodell trotzt selbst den größten Herausforderungen der Zeit. Dank des Geschäftsmodells, mehr als 60 Jahren Erfahrung in vorausschauendem Denken sowie der Unterstützung durch Berkshire Hathaway verfügt NetJets über eine einzigartige Finanzkraft, auf die sich das Unternehmen und seine Eigentümer ein Leben lang verlassen können. Informieren Sie sich noch heute über ein Teileigentum auf netjets.com. Welcome back. On Thursday morning, hundreds of thousands of teenagers will eagerly be, or perhaps not so eagerly in some cases, be opening their GCSE results. Last week's A-level results showed grades down on the last two years when grades were assessed by teachers in the absence of kids being able to sit formal exams. And there was some evidence of students in the north where COVID cases were higher and education perhaps potentially more disrupted, falling a bit further behind. Sam, what are you expecting GCSEs to show us? Well, unusually, we know exactly what they're going to show us. We're going to get results that are halfway between uh, those in 2019 before COVID and 2021 last year, where, as you say, results were, were set by teachers. And we know that because the government and Ofqual, the exams regulator, have told us that's where they're going to try and get uh, the exam results to come out this year. What they're trying to do is get us back over the course of two years to, to that 2019 number. So before all of this sort of COVID era inflation was built into the, to, to the grades. Uh, so, so we are on a, 
uh, a glide path, I think they called it, um, back back to that. So we know what results are going to be. We were able to know what A-level results were going to be last week before they were announced. Obviously, we don't know what they're going to be for any individual student or school, but but at a national level, we we, we know what the picture is going to be, which means we, it won't actually tell us very much about real performance and real world attainment because the results were essentially fixed a year ago. A-level results are often seen as really high stakes because university places depend on them, but half the country doesn't go to university. GCSEs are really critical for hundreds of thousands of, of students taking them. What are the implications of potentially, you know, the pass mark, for example, around the key GCSEs like maths and English slipping back from where they've been over the last couple of years? I mean, that's a, a really high stakes issue for a different group of kids. Yes. I mean, the GCSEs are less high stakes for, for individual students. Um, but they do still matter. And they also matter even for those going to university because because we use predicted grades um, as, a, as a way of, of doing university admissions in this country very unusually. GCSEs are the only actual grades students have going into university as well. So it, it does really matter. GCSEs will be le- much less affected than A-levels by, by what's going on, by this COVID readjustment, because they didn't rise so much, partly because they are less high stakes. They didn't rise so much. Uh, they didn't inflate as much. So we're not going to see as big a drop. And I think the system will manage it fairly well to be honest i'm not anticipating uh, any massive sort of outrage or, or 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 huge problems as a result um and 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 actually for the kids who are on the borderline of, of getting a good pass that actually didn't change very much at all during covid it was only the top grades that really inflated be a lot of relief for lots of parents if you're right how worried are you both about the broader picture the damage covid's done to this generation of kids not just necessary a level and, and gcse students but but younger children too, you know, all the way up from early years and the number of toddlers who missed out on nursery time to primary school children whose start at school was was very disrupted. How long is it realistically going to take to catch up? I was until recently a, a school governor of a local primary school. And one of the things that we had looked at in terms of early years, you know, we're central London school, lots of kids um, don't have outdoor space. They're sort of trapped in small flats and things like that. And so you know, up to the age of five, I don't think we've seen yet what emotional impact that has had on a, on a lot of children and the way that they are socialized, um, you know, the, the limitations of what their parents can do. And that's all parents. This isn't kind of, you know, trying to target anyone in particular. I don't think I would have coped particularly well with under fives, you know, during COVID. So I think we are still trying to ascertain what the impact has been especially for those young children and i and i do worry particularly around some of the rules that governed outdoor play and all that kind of thing when we were shut up you know you can only go out once or whatever um and the interaction with other children could have a really severe impact on the way that they then go and behave in classrooms and the way that they think about rules and order and being able to focus and concentrate so i i don't think we're really at a point yet where we can uh, understand what it's done to those children Sam, how much do we know already about the damage done by um, school closures or the damage done by learning loss during lockdown? And how optimistic are you about the, shall we say, quite limited catch-up programmes that have been put in place so far? So we we have some good early evidence, I think, um, both from the National Reference Test, which is a sort of annual test that is low stakes and is used to see whether there's actual real change in the system year on year for secondary students, and then from the uh, end of primary test as well. And what both of those show, interestingly, is that maths has got worse, but English hasn't. So we've seen a real drop off in in maths performance. Um, 
And it, and I think that's very likely because parents found it a lot easier to help with English than they did to help with maths. Certainly true in our house, yep. <laughs> and, and true in our house as well. Um, and, and, and maths is probably also more sensitive to sort of losing the sequence as well. Um, so so I think maths is, is the area I'm most concerned about. And I think, you know, the government's done very little um, to, to sort of help schools. Schools are struggling for all sorts of reasons, uh, facing the same inflationary pressures everyone else is. Um, so, so I, there's not there's nothing additional that's happening for those young people really beyond a bit of extra tutoring for some of them. Um, so, I'm I'm not sure we're ever going to recover that that mass loss in particular for the cohorts that have been affected, um, which is which is really a shame. And, and other countries did do a lot more uh, than, than than we did to to try and to try and mitigate that. Um, but I am you know, separately from the attainment learning loss, I am worried about the social implications. And we have seen a huge surge in the number of uh, mental health uh, cases for, for adolescents in particular. Yeah, it's terrifying for a lot of parents of teenagers. Education used to be absolutely key to, to what was called the level to what was known as the leveling up agenda, giving kids from poor backgrounds the skills to get on in life, supposedly. I want to take you back for a minute to Boris Johnson. It, it feels like it's a long time ago, this, but it was only in July 2021. No one believes, I don't believe, you don't believe, there's any basic difference in the potential of babies born across this country. Everybody knows that talent and energy and enthusiasm and flair are evenly spread across the UK. I don't think either of the candidates in this current contest would disagree with anything he was saying there, but but are you surprised that, that education and levelling up haven't featured more on the hustings, that, that both candidates haven't been pushed more in detail as to where they would be on this one, Salma? I think it's interesting because how how much are they wanting to even talk about leveling up because it's such it's so associated with Boris Johnson and I think they at some point they're going to come come up with their own marketing wrapper and whatever it's going to be so you know leveling up used to be the northern powerhouse which turned into the midlands engine which was probably called something else under new labor and essentially let's be honest it's just a marketing wrapper um to put around lots of policies that have probably existed in 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 lots of different administrations ultimately the thing that is missing is both candidates actually talking seriously about the skills agenda. And whether that is school level, whether that's in relation to COVID catch up, or whether that's in, in relation to the fact that we need to sort of have a, a better skills profile nationally for the kind of industry and the kind of sectors that we want to attract to this country, it's it's been pretty, pretty woeful. I, I think the problem is that you can't talk about sort of wanting to supercharge and turbocharge the economy as they have done previously, or talk about whatever version of levelling up they're going to have, without truly addressing the fact that they're not really releasing human potential. And worse than that, you know, Liz Truss's recorded comments that were leaked about the fact that British workers aren't grafters. I mean, that just sort of underlines how preposterous um, the skills agenda is in terms of uh, the way both of these candidates think about it. Because how do you have a productive economy unless you're upskilling people? So I, so I, I'm, I feel very disappointed by it. Sam, it, it wouldn't be a Tory leadership contest if someone hadn't suggested bringing back grammar schools. I mean, that's literally on the bingo card every time. Uh, but do you find it frustrating that that's sort of been the level of debate about education? Yeah, I mean, Liz Truss saying she wants more grammar schools, it's it's desperate, desperate stuff. She has no way to actually create any more grammar schools, no money 
um, and the law doesn't allow it. So she'd have to pass a new law and, and good luck to her getting that through the Lords before the next election. It, it shows a real lack of ideas. It's not even popular anymore. I say it feels like a real throwback. It feels like, oh, we're back in the early sort of 1990s, John Major. And- yeah, I mean, it might be popular with Tory members, just about. Um, but it, but certainly anyone over the age of uh, anyone under the age of sixty five, sort of, what what are you talking about? This isn't related to their experience of education or their understanding of what needs to to improve at all. So I very much suspect it won't happen at all anyway. But it, yeah, it, it certainly indicates the the poverty of the of the debate. And also the kind of it strikes me the sort of abstraction from real life. I mean, it's not it's not a conversation that anybody I know is having at the school gate. You know, it's not it's not what people with kids in school are currently worried about. And that's I mean, before we go today, I, I want to come back to something that your old boss, uh, Michael Gove, said of trust in a in a piece for The Times. He said her economic plans were taking a holiday from reality um, for someone as sort of terminally polite as Michael is. That's fairly withering. Is that fair? And is there there a broader part of that? Is she effectively the candidate at odds with reality or the candidate who's not really engaging with reality? I mean, yes. Uh, At the moment, she's not engaging with reality very clearly. She's going to have an ugly meeting with it in a couple of weeks where she's going to have to engage with it. uh, And we'll we'll all see how how well she deals with it and and how well that that goes. But I think, you know, uh, Michael Gove's point is is, is quite important because it, it tells us that there will be a quite a substantial group of experienced former ministers on the back benches who are very unconvinced by Liz Truss and will be you know, not openly hostile um, straight away, but will certainly be waiting for her to slip and won't have any compunction about pointing out when she does. Uh, she does not have a united, enthusiastic party behind her, which makes all of these major challenges that we've talked about even harder to, to deal with. All holidays end to some extent with a with coming back down to earth and a queue at the baggage carousel and a load of unpacking. Do you think when it comes to that stage for, for Liz Truss, Salma, can she make the switch between the sort of personality she's presented on the hustings and the kind of personality she's going to have to present if she's going to appeal to a very different electorate? Is she capable of doing that pivot? The answer is I don't know, because there's a challenge for her and it's sort of the Theresa May challenge, which is sitting atop a government you know for with civil servants who will just do what you say making yourself feel powerful that way is not the same obviously as going out to the public and whether she can be popular and you know give that sort of sense that she's on people's side I'm not sure that that's there and I also think that as Sam said she's going to have a huge problem sort of keeping her parliamentarians on track what kind of leader will she be in order to create that broad consensus and that sort of big tent uh, approach I don't think that's going to happen and so I wonder if that if that Theresa May type um, problem is going to reappear which is it's my way or the highway and when she goes out to an election campaign is she just going to be really annoyed with anybody that criticizes or challenges and just tries to bulldoze through? And I really worry that her leadership is going to have that complexion. I mean, people call her continuity Boris, um, but she doesn't have that sort of jovial campaigny side to her. So I do worry that it's going to be a little bit of a repeat of Teresa. Great. On that note, <laughs> the political reality. <laughs> You can see why, given how how sort of ugly the political reality facing whoever wins this time is. You can see why almost someone might want to take a holiday from it. But ignoring reality doesn't make it go away, I suppose, is a problem. Can't help wondering whether 
that's where Liz Truss, for all her determination, is potentially going to come unstuck. But anyway, thank you very much, both of you. Thank you for joining me today and thank you for all your insights. Thanks, Gary. Thank you. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby, music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. And John Harris will be back next week with an episode of Politics Weekly UK coming from Birmingham. This is The Guardian. Als weltweiter Marktführer des privaten Fliegens versteht NetJets, wie wichtig es ist, sich bei jeder Investition finanziell abgesichert zu fühlen. Deshalb entscheiden sich Kunden für NetJets. Unser bewährtes Geschäftsmodell trotzt selbst den größten Herausforderungen der Zeit. Dank des Geschäftsmodells, mehr als 60 Jahren Erfahrung in vorausschauendem Denken sowie der Unterstützung durch Berkshire Hathaway verfügt NetJets über eine einzigartige Finanzkraft, auf die sich das Unternehmen und seine Eigentümer ein Leben lang verlassen können. Informieren Sie sich noch heute über ein Teileigentum auf netjets.com.